Hello and welcome to InsureTech Insider episode 104. I'm Benjamin Ensel. In today's episode, we're going to talk about new business models in InsureTech and what the future holds. As always, I'm not alone, but I'm joined by a panel of amazing guests. First up, I'm joined by my fantastic co-host, David Breer, CEO at 11FS. How are you, David? Yeah, I'm pretty good. I mean, after a week on holiday, I'm feeling all sorts of relaxed, uh, I have to say. And uh, I'm not on point for the podcast either. So, like, I'm just here for fun. It's great. So uh, we're going to have a fun time. You can throw in the bombshells. It's a, it's a, it's a nice <laughs> switch around. <laughs> so alongside David, um, making his InsureTech Insider debut, we have Stuart Winchester, CEO of Marble. How are you doing today, Stuart? I am doing well. Thanks for asking. We have our first sort of chilly day here in New York after a unseasonably warm October. So enjoying wearing a sweatshirt around, um, I guess, my apartment, but still wearing it. Welcome to the show. Temperatures are definitely dropping in the Northern Hemisphere. I was going to say, talk, talking weather with Brits, like you've, you've, you've really landed really effectively there immediately. Haven't you? I don't want to jump right into it. I'm, I'm my, my dad is from London. I'm, I'm a dual citizen, right. so I'm not do- putting on airs. It comes naturally to me to talk weather. It's where I go as a comfort zone. <laughs> Very good. Can you tell us a little bit about um, Marble? So can you give us a couple of sentences for, for listeners who are not familiar with Marble? Yeah, absolutely. I actually had someone describe it back to me the other day as sort of the first uh, user-centric platform for insurance as opposed to something that's product-centric. What we de- How we describe it is like the tools and technologies to build true engagement with insurance and between insurance and their and insurance customers. We have a consumer platform in the US, which is the first sort of personal ecosystem for all insurance policies, home, auto, life, warranty, title, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, That is powered by a rewards program. And then we also license that rewards program technology to insurance carriers in the US and build sort of white labeled rewards and engagement programs. So a little bit of consumer, a little bit of SaaS, um, but just think rewards engagement for insurance. Fantastic. Thank you. And alongside Stuart, we also have another uh, debut on InsureTech Insider. So welcome, Victoria Roberts, Director of FinTech Delivery Panel and InsureTech Board at Tech Nation. How are you doing today? I'm doing really well, thank you. It's also been a bit chilly on the school run here uh, here in London, so the weather's definitely turning. Can you tell our listeners a little bit more about your role, please? Absolutely. So I work at Tech Nation, which is the growth platform for all scaling entrepreneurs right across the UK. And at Tech Nation, we have um, programmes to support entrepreneurs, but we also bring the ecosystem together in panels that look to support the wider tech environment. So I run the FinTech Delivery Panel and the InsureTech Board, which is funded by HM Treasury, with the goal of strengthening the UK as a global leader in the future of finance. As part of this in the InsureTech board, I have the privilege of working with representatives from Aviva, AXA, Hiscox, as well as the likes of Bought by Many, Pickle, Broker Insights and Plug and Play on projects to increase investment into UK InsureTech, encourage innovation in UK InsureTech and also to support partnering with the larger financial institutions. Excellent. Thank you. So let's start the conversation by talking about the current uh, InsureTech landscape and see if we can pinpoint some of the areas where innovation is currently coming from. And I think it might be useful to just uh, think about innovation, both from InsureTechs that are delivering services direct to customers like Marble and InsureTechs that are maybe delivering their solutions to insurance companies, you know, sort of claims, technologies and so on and so forth. So what would you say are some of the business models in insurance that have really stood out over the past few years, in in your opinion, I mean, maybe I can come to you, David, first on for your thoughts on what have you seen that's been really exciting over the last couple of years. 
Yeah, I, I mean, I'd say uh, with similar pattern that we've sort of seen in banking to a certain degree. I know, I know uh, for anybody who's a long-time listener to, to FinTech Insider as a sister to this podcast, you'll be able to sort of sing along to this part of what I say because I've said it so many times. But but the idea that actually the, the insurance industry essentially just digitized what it had prior. You know, we saw uh, an annual policy because actually going and getting one more frequently than that was a real pain in the ass because it was such a long way away that actually what we've sort of taken is just the the analog form of insurance and turned it into a 12-month policy online. So we're now selling essentially the same product that's existed in the insurance space for hundreds of years, theoretically, but the certificate is now a certificate that sits on a you know an FTP website, and, and that's what they call self-service. So for me, the, the shift that we've sort of seen is it's kind of breaking down that cycle. You know, we're seeing people moving into models that are, are more about uh, using insurance when it's relevant to use it, which fundamentally changes the cost structuring of it. It doesn't necessarily make it cheaper, but it does make it fitting the uh, the service around it to be more like a bespoke suit than just one that you'll get off the shelf. Victoria, you're seeing both sides of this as um, as you talked about established insurance companies and, and some of the insurtechs. Where are you seeing the most activity? Do you agree with what David was saying or yeah, so I think there's still a long way um, for the sector to go in terms of innovation, but I definitely say the pace has picked up in recent months. The business models that I think excite me the most at the moment are those that respond to not just how insurance can involve, but actually how the world is changing in terms of both the proposition and um, also points of distribution. So you've got people like Dingy and Sherpa looking at freelancer insurance as you find more people sort of looking to that way of working. Um, you've got Pickle looking at covering Airbnb and, um, and short-term lets. And then you've got people like Floodflash getting into um, more sort of preventative, um, even parametric insurance models, which is really exciting and I think shows a, a new role that the sector could go on to play. Stuart, what's your take? You must have been motivated building Marvel partly by frustration at what you saw out there. At, 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 what, what, tell us your perspective. Yeah, and I think I mean, both both answers sort of touch on things that I've, I've seen uh, or are reacting to, whatever that accounts for. But to the point about digital distribution and just moving the conventional policy online, a lot of what inspired Marble was I used to work at a company called Better.com, Better Mortgage, online mortgage lender here in the US. And I, I built their insurance vertical. And we built this amazing online quoting process, very cool, real-time bindable rates online. And we sort of opened it up to the customers and we said, ta-da, pretty cool, right? And customers were like, eh, you know, I've already buy flights online, I already get my bank account online. It was actually far more impressive to us coming from the technical side than it was to the consumer. Because they we, insurance was sort of last last out the door in terms of making this distribution or the sale online, but but I think that the corollary to that or what the follow up is that's tremendously exciting is brands or companies who are doing a fantastic job now educating customers because so much of the transaction is happening online and is not happening over the phone or this in this sort of like intermediated way between an agent and the customer. Customers are having to teach themselves or teach themselves to fish or, or get up to speed. So the brands that can educate in real time, provide this huge differentiation, which is tremendously exciting to me, uh, because that's where we start to get into the next next. Instead of just putting a regular policy document on an FTP, we're now really teaching someone something that consumers for thousands of years, the average consumer, you know, outside of Lloyd's, hasn't had much cause to, to learn about. Um, and to Victoria's point, I think where some of the most exciting stuff that's happening is in the cat coverage, at least speaking for the US market. 
new earthquake coverages, new flood coverage types, these things that have been typically underwritten or provided at like the federal state level, private players are coming in and now doing really cool educational proactive coverage products that I think are really exciting and are starting to break that mold that, that David mentioned. For, for consumers or for corporations or, or both? For consumers is sort of the lens for me on that one. Because I think as, as, as a Briton, I, I don't think of buying earthquake insurance because when, you know, this this island isn't particularly prone to earthquakes, but obviously if you live in San Francisco... Fingers crossed, it stays the way it is, yeah. <laughs> well, and I guess that applies to many things, isn't it? I live in Norwich, which is um, essentially flat as a pancake. So like flood insurance and the, the measures and the early warning signs and the preventative measures that people can kind of put in place for those things. It's, as you say, the the model of insurance is, is almost the claim should be the uh, the last resort. And if you can, whether it's health insurance, whether it's flood insurance, if there's preventative measures you can put in place to, to stop the, the need for a, a claim, then that's pretty smart, isn't it? Yeah, I always think the huge opportunity in insurance for innovation is to actually prevent the risks in the first place, or at least reduce the chance of the risk happening. Because you know, in other industries, you know, you're just delivering things better. But in insurance, you can potentially educate customers and help them avoid risks, reduce risk. And there's huge opportunity to just reduce the amount of catastrophes and accidents that happen to people. Yeah. I mean, and, th- and that's the thing. And that's the weird thing with this industry, really, isn't it? Like when we talk about risk in, in insurance, the risk really is not necessarily it, the, the risk people are trying to price in is whether people are actually going to use the product that they're buying or not, isn't it? Which is which is just bizarre when you think about it. Most people with most grudge purchases, with most life purchases, people are insuring them on a basis that they hope they never have to use it. Like, I don't want to crash my car. I don't want a heart attack. Like, I hope I never have to use these things. But if those things happen, you want to feel protected. Stuart, tell us a little bit more about, you were just talking about in education. Tell us a little bit more about what, what you see as the opportunities there to, to educate customers better. Were you, when you were talking about that, did you just mean in terms of sort of understanding what's in the policies or were you thinking more widely about the risks? Sort of think it goes hand in hand. And, I, and, and to, to answer your question, building off David's point, I mean, there's this, you know, there's this maybe unfair reputation in insurance that there's this like, you know, the house always wins. There's an asymmetry of information on the side of the insurer because they have massive data sets scaled across multiple geographies and demographics and they'll they sort of know your risk better than you may know yourself and there's this like pretty cool opportunity so i got so to, to stand up this insurance product years ago i got licensed as an agent here in the us and that was a as you can imagine a crash course in how policy works and also sort of a entry into how these risks work too and how you can you know counsel a customer through their their relevant risks and i I see this very cool thing where insurance could actually become far more dynamic and less reactive to when the claim happens, which tends to lead to churn because claims experience tends to be a negative experience and instead develop like a much more sort of not intrusive relationship, but like let's just call it proactive relationship where you understand what you're paying for, which table stakes, you know, a lot of people don't already, no, no fault of their own. And how you can maximize your individual situation relative to the risks that aren't, aren't covered, um, and, partic- and you have particularly moving into the sort of climate environment we are, a more educated consumer base about what's covered and how that coverage may interact with the risks around them, is a pretty cool paradigm shift to consider in this incredibly old industry. It's 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 a little bit of like a state change, you know, from top to bottom. Definitely, definitely. I I think I'm you know I'm always particularly interested in the opportunity to 
provide more advice and to use technology to provide customers with more sort of advice and guidance about the risks they're exposed to, which at the sort of top end customers, you know, business customers, corporations kind of have got from their brokers. But I think in the in the retail markets, you know, the agents haven't necessarily been very focused on on that kind of advice for customers. And I think that that data lives and I'm, and I'm sure this is familiar to all of us, so that data and when I say that data, I mean that that risk data has lived historically in these core systems that what get redone every decade maybe by a carrier and maybe every time it's sort of like a, um, the opposite of or it's like erosion every 10 years as these core platform systems happen maybe that data gets closer and closer to the surface where someone who isn't a deep it engineer can look at it interact with it or isn't deeply uh, an actuary and now as we have that that risk level data gets super close to the surface what are we going to do with agents brokers and customers when they start to see it yeah, I think that frequency and access of data is, is so critical in terms of the changing piece, isn't it? In terms of being able to accurately risk uh, and price things, but but the frequency of being able to check in with them on the experiences of actually having those products as well, because it's um, that dynamic has shifted, isn't it? And if we look at the you know the digital age is the ability to you know literally capture thousands of data points every day, whether it's you know Apple watches or telematics in your car or you know whatever that's happening around those things. So you know the feedback loop to insurance companies is, I mean, it used to be either you didn't renew, you renewed, or you had an accident of some form and you claimed. But you know the the feedback loop on data now is so continuous that actually the ability to provide we, we all sort of joke the the irony is financial services turning into a service not just a product right uh, and actually getting to that point where they're really providing those services is is where there's so much more opportunities i think with a with a business model hat on definitely so let's let's move on and talk a little bit about um some of the new digital insurers have, have, that have launched in the market so just like we've seen sort of loads of digital banks we've seen you know this wonderful kaleidoscope of new digital insurers with wonderfully colourful names like lemonade or marble or marshmallow or marmalade um, and marble and so on. So, um, you know, what's what's driving the emergence of so many new consumer brands? There's some of them are also sort of small business brands and so on. I mean, Victoria, what's your perspective on why we're seeing so many new insurance brands launching and what's driving that, do you think? I think there's probably um, a number of reasons to uh, unpack. I, I don't think it's necessarily because we've been lacking in inspired um, founders. I think um, you quite often see them as tie-ins or MGAs with established insurers. And and let's face it, it's taken the established insurers um, some time, probably started a while ago, to kind of get their legacy systems um, in order and to really start to think about their own digital strategies. And that's probably the point when they're then thinking about um, partnering or, um, or acquiring, which will drive activity in the market. And I think investment into insurtech has been slower than, than fintech as well. Um, it, it's a market that can be harder to understand. It's not a straight growth model, right? It's um, You need to focus on your, on your core and you need to demonstrate that you can assess and manage risk accurately before you then go on to build your business. But if you're a traditional fintech investor and you've been looking for you know, what, what's the return going to be over the next two, five years? What's the growth model? Then that's quite a different conversation that I think investors have taken a while to warm up to as well. Stuart, you've obviously, you know, are building your own company. What do you see as the advantages that, that you and firms like you have over the sort of established insurance companies? It's a, a great question. And I, I, Victoria, when you mentioned the growth model, that's a, like, that is a very salient point when you draw that line between fintech and insurtech. 
that Andrew, that's a very dangerous question because as a startup founder, I'm constantly being bamboozled into trying to say bad things about the incumbent <laughs> carriers who I have a ton of respect for and I would never say anything bad about them and they do amazing things at massive scale. That being said, here comes the but. We, we have a contemporary technical stack, right? And technical to, you know, technical evolution, technical growth is, if not exponential, pretty close to exponential. So where we see our value add both to our consumers and when we work with carriers is just how fast our technology allows us to go. You know, next month we're launching a rewards program with a million policy plus auto carrier here in the US. And we're doing it with a team of eight, you know, they have eight people assigned to us from their company of like a thousand. Um, and we're able to just support that because we, you know, we use modern APIs, we use Django, we use a backend that is configurable. So to some extent, the modern tech stack just gives us compounding benefits in terms of development cycles because we started in 2020 as opposed to 1960. So that that's a that's a big advantage for us. Um, and then I think as well that there is just a little bit of mentality shift. I mean, we're, you know, I think in any industry, and this is not unique to insurance, but we just sort of, we being writ large founders, being unleashed in the insurance industry, especially as the appetite and the capital has on, has sort of come into the space, are just kind of moving with a little bit more, um, I don't want to say hysteria, but a little bit more uh, motivation to, to try and attack these opportunities because there is so much of being uncovered almost daily. And of course, you've got the incentive to sort of attack. I mean, exactly. That's what I mean. It's a little bit, not quite a gold rush, but it's a, uh, maybe maybe something, you know, some a silver rush, let's say. I don't want to be <laughs> hysterical you know, about it. We've, we've talked quite a bit about the sort of the, the front end and the, and the customer experience and, and the way that we're, you know, the, the insurtech, insurtechs are providing more education to customers and so on. But what about some of the back end processes, some of the claims processes, uh, some of the, you know, the hard work of sort of underwriting of predicting risk and so on? Where are we seeing the real impact of InsurTech there? Where are we? What are the big opportunities? What are the technologies maybe that are really driving change, do you think? I think I'm most excited about the um, the new sources of data. Um, in my time, I've worked in a FTSE 100 company, but also a, a, a telematics firm. So uh, I think I'm uh, really sort of buying the, buying into um, the, the idea that actually data can very much drive that personalization of um of, of the insurance sector uh, in a way that can be uh, beneficial in terms of underwriting risk but also um reducing the cost for consumers now of course that doesn't mean that it'll be the right solution for everybody and there'll be a balance to find there to make sure that people aren't um excluded but uh, yeah i think for me it's the um the the additional tools for underwriters and then that's difficult right because underwriting systems aren't necessarily set up to incorporate these new data streams so um it's not just about the new data it's about the new processes as well. But I think that's sort of something, I don't think we've um, reached the full potential of that by any means yet. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I'd echo a lot of that really. I, I mean, I'd say, uh, just going back to your earlier question about why are we seeing this now to a certain degree? I mean, actually, there, if insurance is, is in a different place to where banking was. Banking had the catalyst, which was the financial crisis. You know, 2008 gave everybody a big old kick up the arse to actually get in on understanding how innovation should work and, and really looking at what that would be. And the regulatory change that we saw in that period really acted like such an amazing catalyst for the industry to, to sort of you know, pull its, uh, pull its socks up, as it were. Um, I, th- I think from an insurance perspective, there hasn't really been that impetus for a long time. But why are we seeing sort of an abundance of people coming to the market? It, it's similar sort of 
traits, really. You know, we're seeing venture capitalists looking for new opportunities. We're seeing entrepreneurs who are, are kind of fed up with the status quo. And fundamentally, I'm going I'm to be a lot harsher than Stuart is. I mean, why does fintech exist? Because banks didn't get their shit together. InsureTech exists because insurance companies left opportunity on the table. And actually, you know, those opportunities is where you can create amazing beachheads for, for organizations that you can pivot then to be broader and broader things and, and meet more and more customers' needs, really. Um, I think the other thing is, like, I really think there's more and more customer demand in in insurance than I've really seen in in fintech in banking because customers are just crying out for better opportunities in these spaces. I think they've been, you know, ripped off for a decade when it comes to sort of renewals and processes and everything that's there and really are actively chasing, you know, different options. It's why aggregators have done so amazingly well in Europe because people don't really trust insurance companies. They want somebody else to do the hard work. And and that's why we're starting to see, you know, the emergence of InsureTech in such a major way because the market's just reached that tipping point of maturity. So it's, um, it's amazing to see. I mean, it's taken a hell of a lot of effort for a hell of a lot of people, but that uh, those those sort of different variables of technology and regulation and capital and smart folks, uh, you know, it's all paying off. Definitely, I think one of the big ones for me has been the the inflexibility of pricing and you know those standard sort of monthly or annual policies that just don't work for particularly people who work in the sort of gig economy and so on. But even you know small businesses that are scaling up fast, or uh, you know all sorts of people. You know the pandemic, of course, has, has you know, changed a lot of people's circumstances, and then you're finding you're on a fixed year-long policy that's just not appropriate by the time you get to the end of that. And I think a lot of uh, established insurance companies were very slow there. But I also think it's fascinating how we're seeing technologies um, improve things like the claims process. You know, we sort of take it for granted now that you can use your mobile phone to take pictures of of the claim and that you don't have someone coming to visit your house to assess the claim. I mean, that in itself is a huge source of efficiency and reduced cost for insurers. How far does this go? I mean, do we do we think we're going to see some of the big insurance companies maybe get toppled? Do we think, you know, is someone like a lemonade going to become, you know, a household? I mean, maybe it's already a household name in the States. Do we think we're going to see a new guard of some of these insure techs really coming in and displacing some of the established firms? Or will they just sit alongside them? How, how far does this go, do you think? Boy, do I hope so. That we see some new players sort of in that top tier of, of, of policy volume and premium written, but it's a, it's a challenge. I mean, coming from even mortgage, where Better has done really well, massive company, amazing technology, but it, you know the amount of volume of loans they do versus a Quicken or a Rocket Mortgage is still paltry and i think it's you know the 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 scale problem here is so massive because these large incumbents have data sets they can spend more in a month on you know brand marketing they can sponsor more baseball games than even a lemonade can spend in a year um, and brand is just still so 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 top of mind we just ran a survey recently and we were asking people you know we did a big national survey just internally to see what where people shop and you know geico and progressive websites are still the primary way people are getting quotes even over the Zebra, Insurify, these really successful, amazing technology companies. So I think surely you'll see one or two shoot through to that to that top tier. I think there'll be a lot of consolidation below that. You know, I think you'll see, and I actually would, I think similar things will happen in the neobanks too. You'll see some roll-ups, some mergers, some consolidation, and then you'll see some tactical acquisitions um, like you saw with Prudential and Assurance IQ. And I, my, my, if I had to look into a crystal ball, which I don't have, I think, again, you'll see one or two make it through. 
you'll see a lot of those brands that we see today as sub, you know, sub brands within the larger carriers that got acquired and like maybe one or two sort of transformer, you know, monsters that, that are, you know, some merger between the, the, a couple of them. I think I think for me there's um, a, a regulatory and a capital element to this as well. You might get insurtechs who completely nail the um, customer experience or people that innovate in the distribution space, but. Um, somebody who's previously spent a lot of former life on, on the Eurostart uh, Brussels to talk about solvency too. Um, that's uh, that's a very different category to start to get into as a smaller player with ambitions to grow. And don't get me wrong, I'd, I'd love there to be more competition and for some of these smaller companies to, to be the next big global thing. But I think you, you could move to a scenario where the larger existing insurers at the moment um, sort of pick up a lot of the underwriting for the newer, more innovative products that are coming through from the smaller companies. I think that's a really- good point it's um to use your your sort of uh, wording there benjamin it's not uh, to to victoria's point it's not about whether the the insurance new insure techs will sit alongside the the existing ones it's probably that they'll sit on top of them uh, and i think actually to your point victoria in terms of using their uh, access to capital to actually do these things and i think we get into that stage of sort of reinsurance and uh, manufacturing of products and distribution uh, and I think it's undoubtable that the, the the startups, the new people coming into the scene who are a lot closer to customers' real problems are just going to get better and better and better and faster and faster, faster, and so much closer to customers' problems that they'll, they will be uh, great at that distribution in a, in a bigger and better way. And that's not even to get into, I mean, back to Stuart's point, the, you know, above the line spend from a marketing perspective, you know, this is just talking about insurtechs, not even getting into, I mean, you know, Tesla doing insurance or whoever doing insurance, like huge global brands that can spend more than insurance companies on uh, distribution of their brand and, and marketing for those things. So um, I think it is going to be a fascinating market, but it's going to be a lot harder to dislodge one of the big incumbent players uh, in insurance than it is in banking just because of the, the the amount of capital that's really required to to get in there and make that happen. But but just because it costs a lot of money doesn't mean somebody won't do it. It will just, uh, just means somebody hasn't done it yet. So we've come halfway through this conversation. We haven't actually talked about embedded insurance yet, but you kind of alluded to it in what you were just saying. And we've got all sorts of brands like uh, Clio and Drover and Free Agent and Zenefits and so on, distributing insurance now through other platforms. You know, companies that got relationships with small businesses, consumers and so on. Tesla, you just mentioned. And these companies are embedding insurance into other experiences, uh, combining them with other products that they're selling to customers, making that whole journey smoother. How far does that go? How much does that change the way that insurance is distributed? Do we start to see companies that embed insurance displace the insurance agents and the brokers that have played such a big role in insurance distribution in the past? I think we're certainly seeing the insurers uh, thinking very strategically about their uh, partnerships. And uh, you've alluded to the automotive space, and that's a great example where people must be thinking that could well become the point uh, of sale. And also the question about who owns the data of the telematics is built into the car itself. Um, I think for me, embedded insurance offers an opportunity for um, more frequent and better access to insurance than people might have if they sort of had to then themselves buy something and then think about um, whether they then needed to be protected in the event that something happened to that particular asset. But I think there's also a risk with embedded insurance. We need to make sure that ease doesn't sacrifice um, or hide choice and competition. So be quite interested sort of whether people start providing platforms for different insurers or whether there's sort of gets tied up with one insurer and one automotive company. And that, that actually could have quite negative consumer outcomes. Yeah, that's a really, really great point. 
uh, I have a lot of opinions on this as I do a lot of things, but this one I actually have firsthand experience because we built an embedded home insurance product within the mortgage flow. And I recently wrote a blog post too about, uh, or I wrote the intro to an investor letter about embedded insurance, which I put on my website, but it's like, I think that embedded today to Victoria's point, if you want choice, which is critical, if you want explanation, and if you don't want to risk the underlying transaction, because in the nature of embedded is the implication that you're embedded in another sales cycle, works really well for like three figure policies. So things that are under a thousand, you know, a thousand dollars or a thousand, you know, pounds or, you know, really things that are a little bit more transactional. So concert tickets, maybe some auto warranties where it gets really tricky still today is if you want to offer that choice, which is critical. And if you don't offer it, not only is it a risk to consumer protection, but consumers will throw a flag and say, hold up, I don't see choice here. I'm going to go and get that, get some comparisons. If you do that in more complex transactions, home buying, auto buying, things like that, you're actually putting this process in an already quite complex sales process. And if you get it wrong, the, the line between a virtuous and vicious cycle is very thin. You can damage both sales cycles or you can improve your LTV massively. And I don't know that I've done it right, but I'm very aware of, the, of where the pitfalls are. And, and I think we're, we're at, to, to Victoria's point and to your question about agents, agents are a critical part of that because people have a lot of questions about these more expensive policies and more expensive transactions. And unless you can provide choice, support, availability in every state in the US, you, you may actually fall on the light of, on that side still of that vicious cycle. As technology gets better, you have more resources to go to the virtuous side, but it's really, really tricky right now and can actually kind of take take you take your whole business down with it. That's a really, really great point. And it's a great point to end this, this little section on. So now we're just gonna take a quick break and we'll be back very shortly. Looking to sharpen your competitive edge when it comes to design? Join hundreds of subscribers using 11FS Pulse to solve their users' problems and get to market faster. Discover over 4,000 user journeys from global brands like Revolut, Curve, and Soldo, and learn how to design winning customer propositions with our expert analysis. Get started today by visiting bit.ly forward slash get a pulse demo. Okay, welcome back. Let's get on with the show. So let's have a think about open finance and open insurance. We've seen a lot of moves by regulators worldwide to give customers more control over their data. That's led to open banking. It's led to an opening up of payments, and that's coming to insurance. So what does that really look like in, in practice for customers? Victoria, perhaps I can start with you on this one. Absolutely. And uh, this is a really key topic that uh, Tech Nations InsurTech Board have been looking at in a lot of detail in recent months, because I think it feels like there's a real opportunity here for both customers and the and the sector to drive future innovation. But as we've been exploring this topic, it's been clear that whilst there are many opportunities, there's uh, there's obviously um, several risks that could come from that as well. So I think it's, it's really great that we're all talking about that direction, but uh, clearly there's more work to be done. 
Stuart, we've we've you know we've seen resistance um, in in the banking industry to sort of open banking. You know, there's some banks that have not been tremendously enthusiastic about it. Let's say, do you think we'll see the same kind of resistance from insurance companies to to sort of opening up their data, or do you think that the historic reliance on brokers and agents and so on means that insurance companies actually be a bit more comfortable with? opening up data a bit more. I think we may already be over the Rubicon on that one, having been on the receiving end of the threat of a cease and desist myself from a large US-based carrier, who we are very happy to listen to their lawyers. But um, there's this sort of first wave in the US market of of the plaid for insurance, you know, a phrase that you can say and get a meeting with any venture capitalist you'd like. And that typically involves starting the same way that plaid for banking started, which is taking user credentials, obtaining user permission, and pulling the details from the carrier side portal into some environment. This has been met with great resistance from the carriers, but great demand from consumers because, I mean, it's probably all of us, just even as insurance shoppers, if you can do that, you can avoid manual entry when you shop, you can shop more easily, and you can even pull stuff into other environments maybe even like Marble and pull your all, all your insurance into one unified account. And this this battle between what customers want to shop more easily, because as David said previously, I mean, the, the sort of the horse is out of the barn in terms of price comparison, that's already sailed. Access to their data, education about their data, because they're already buying online, so why should they be able to see other stuff online? And the carriers constraining that data is 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 intention today, um, much like it was in banking and continues to be. Um, I can't really make a prediction on it on, in the near term, but over a long enough timeline, I think it's it's safe to say that the consumer will win because consumer demand content, sort of tends to over a long enough timeline win out while someone's willing to disrupt it. Uh, but it certainly isn't quite acute tension today. David, do you see a lot of opportunities here for for insurers? Um, do you think this? Do you think opening up insurance is going to make make the industry fairer, improve access for customers? Do you see any opportunities for insurers? Um, I think the difficulty is, I mean, there's there's different things we're trying to solve for to a certain degree. I, I mean, if people are being turned down for insurance, understanding why is ridiculously opaque in pretty much every slice of insurance. So getting access to that type of data would be really, really useful to to help people you know, uh, improve their ability to get insurance in spaces that they really need it. Uh, you know, health insurance is a particular one. It's, you know, you sort of don't really ever find out and uh, until you really need it what you're not insured for, right? So uh, I think places where you can really sort of see the benefit of opening up those data sets is to, you know, again, you know, to, to coin a, another, you know, hey, VCs will run at this one. It's like democratizing insurance is like a is a is a real thing, you know, because actually the the access to it in a risk based model becomes the riskier you look, the harder it is to get access or the more you have to pay for it, which, you know, is quite perverse when you think about it. Right. So I, I do think there's a there's a real opportunity for it. Do, do I think there's an opportunity for insurance players? I mean, it's really hard to kind of vote for change when you're kind of doing pretty well in the way in which it is. And, and that's really what we're sort of seeing play out in the market, right? It's if, you, if you're making lots of money right now and you've got lots of customers, why would you want it to change, really? So I think similar to open banking with the banks, you know, we saw them drag their feet really heavily 
in order to just because the status quo is is very profitable and they're very happy with it. Uh, and actually, you know, the greatest thing where we're seeing, you know, companies like yours, Stuart, or, you know, Lemonade uh, are kind of turning up the the heat on the industry to to have to respond, which is great because that then is good for customers because everybody's vying for the right thing, which is, you know, s- differentiation on services. Um, you know, insurance is an industry that really is in risk of kind of going the way of the the MNOs, uh, and, and I mean insurance companies in the same sense. It's like if you play that, if you play the next five years wrong, the whole industry gets commoditized to a point where you're not doing distribution at all, and that's a real challenge because a lot of lines of insurance don't make money in themselves, and, and the the combination of two or three different products with a with a customer is actually what gets you to a, a level of profitability within that uh, that that customer holding. So, you know, if suddenly you're really not in control of your own distribution, just the unit economics, I think, of some of the insurance policies that people are underwriting just fall away. So, it really is the next five years. I think insurance is in a really a really precarious place. But all of this is leading to action, which is good because it means we've got stuff to talk about every week right <laughs> and but also yeah better outcomes for customers uh, victoria I, I believe you've been working on a research report looking at, at at open insurance can you tell us a little bit more about your your findings and and some of the sort of risks and the challenges that that you've been looking at Absolutely. So um, I think the real impetus for this work came from the InsurTech board feeling that there just weren't enough conversations going on around open finance and open insurance. It feels like there's a, a slight inevitability, albeit with David's caveat, around the, the pace to some of these changes around customer ownership and control of their own data coming down the line. And there was just a real sense that people wanted to understand it more and that we should be discussing what that could look like um, rather than just kind of sleepwalking into to somebody setting um, or regulator setting the direction without there having been um, a really uh, really broad discussion on these matters. So um, we did a research report that's available on the Tech Nation InsurTech Board website. And when we set out, I, I thought very much we'd be looking at sort of the future of open finance and open insurance. But for me, one of the one of the kind of really key findings almost was when we looked at open banking, we thought that we'd be looking at open banking in terms of what lessons could be learned for open insurance. And, and there are many in terms of needing a regulatory base and a, an entity to um, to establish the standards. But actually, it just it just revealed to us that there's a lot of opportunities within the current open banking framework within the UK that insurers and insurtechs aren't currently taking up themselves. So they could be using it for better um, and quicker credit risk assessments or for more personalised underwriting. So we don't have to wait for open finance legislation in five, ten years time for that to happen. There's innovation that Sort of could be happening now. So um, we definitely encourage people to think more about how they could be acting in that space. And then in our industry conversations, a second point that came through was really around the fact that there is there is a lot of collaboration that does already exist in the insurance industry. It's not like we have open banking and we have nothing in insurance. In the legislative space, obviously, we've got the pensions dashboard coming forward. But there's also things like the motor policy database, where um, if you're selling a motor insurance policy, you can check very quickly whether people are um, being accurate around the length of their no claims discount, for example. And that's an example of kind of pooling data in a way that ensures you have an accurate customer outcome. 
And then finally, when we did actually then get onto open finance and open insurance, we found that it does tend to bring a lot of, of benefits. And we've, we've covered lots of those in terms of personalization and data. But there was also some hesitations, I suppose, in terms of exactly from the industry side, in terms of which data, how would data be defined, what data would be termed to be customer owned versus proprietary for the insurer. But also on the customer side, in terms of would there be data which perhaps the customer might not have volunteered, but could be available from other sources that might then prohibit access or increase the increase the cost. So um, what, what we did as a conclusion was pull together a number of building blocks, one around kind of how it, how it works with the entity and the, the regulation that would need to be in place, another one very focused on sort of the data and, and the customers, looking at trust, adoption, definitions. And then finally, the fact that David's already said that loud and clear, it will require strategic investments from the established insurers. Uh, and it will also need insure tech innovators that can understand and, and take some of those opportunities forward. So great potential, but there's a lot that needs to happen before we get there. I really like your point about not needing to wait for regulation to to innovate, that, that you know there are data sources available in many countries that InsureTechs or some InsureTechs and insurance companies today haven't yet taken advantage of, and there's huge opportunities to to personalise data, to make claims more efficient, and so on, um, just using existing assets. Also, really like David's point about you know the the way distribution in insurance could change completely, and and some of the issues that that will pose for for insurance companies in the future. So I want to sort of run on a little bit with that thought experiment and think about. If we see this kind of distribution changing, but we also see customers changing because we see particularly younger customers less inclined to own things, less inclined to own cars, less inclined to own houses, and so on. And you end up with a, in a slightly different world where people are renting more assets and thinking differently about how they own assets. How does that start to change insurance? I mean, if we take that further and we end up with sort of private customers really not owning so much stuff. You know, I think one of the challenges for InsureTech has been that, you know, the people who are most ready to adopt this, younger customers actually tend to own less already. So your ideal customers for innovation don't own so much. If that goes further, how do insurance companies start to change what they deliver and how they serve customers? If people don't own the asset and they're just renting, does that change how you distribute? Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, actually it has to, right? Because the 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 sort of tendency of long policy procedure processes becomes irrelevant at the point where you're like, hey, I'm jumping in this car and driving it to Tesco's, right? So you you need to you need to be really reflective and reactive to those things as as those markets change. But I guess that that comes back to some of the points you were making a little bit earlier on around embedded insurance. It's like actually at those points where it removes all of that friction, then actually, you know, arguably what is the product and what is the service? Because essentially they're being, you know, you know, selling insurance when you buy a Tesla is actually just a, a you know, a cross-sell opportunity. But actually jumping in a go-car and uh, your insurance being part of the rental for it immediately, well, that's just actually I'm solving the problem. I'm not solving all of the, the paperwork, really. So um, I, I definitely can see that happening more and more. I mean, it's interesting. I mean, particularly to your point around even that uh, the, the context of that from a physical object perspective in terms of you know cars and vans and all sorts of stuff but you know particularly the insurance industry changing in a you know i think i'm sadly the first person to say this but you know within the metaverse of you know digital capability then actually 
the things that people are owning are increasingly digitally focused. So actually, the insurance industry really reflecting that. You know, I know obviously we've seen you know people insuring uh, you know Minecraft worlds or you know the the character in whatever computer game that they're doing. But you know, getting into a situation where actually the the assets that people are owning are no longer physical, then actually, how does a, a fully digital uh, insurance industry really operate? Yeah. NFTs. How do you, I mean? We 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 went deep on that a little bit in a blog post. How do you insure an NFT? And I mean, I think not to 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 take maybe to pull us the other direction from the metaverse, David, but into like maybe what insurance has already done too. Benjamin, to, to your question, it's funny to also peel back the sort of history of insurance and also look at how things have been. We already do some of these sort of experiential insurance, even travel insurance. You know, I rented a car this weekend and I'm on a group policy for that, you know, through my credit card. Even, you know, merchant insurance, you know, historically, right? These are things that the insurance industry can insure, but we've really, I would say the more, oh, you, one could argue if you want to be pedantic, which why the hell not, that we've only moved to this really asset first view of insurance, you know, since the advent of maybe the modern mortgage and the automobile. Um, but... Maybe there's a maybe there's a uh, you know again a debate club argument you could have that we'll, we'll move back towards temporary because because Benjamin you made this point like this these twelve month policies are so unwieldy and so customer unfriendly and pricing is so opaque maybe this maybe that is the move that moves us back to a world of insurance that's a little bit more digestible for customers a little bit more short term a little bit more transparent I mean that could be that could be a place where a creative carrier could eke out a couple big wins in something that feels like open insurance, but maybe doesn't give away the whole data set, creating stuff that is tied to an asset, but is predicated on the experience with that asset. Do you think on, on that, just to continue that, because I think I think that's a really interesting thing. We might get a bit off topic here, Benjamin, so feel free to tell me to shut up and bring us back in at any point. But do you think it's a, um, do you think it's an asset piece or do you think it's a risk piece? Because essentially, I think a lot of insurances have gone from bucketed spread risk to increasingly looking at very, very specific time-bound risk, ba- you know, and, and the risk that we're now insuring is getting narrower and narrower and narrower. Now, if you kind of extend that out further, that's quite scary because actually, you know, the idea of having sort of uh, policies down to individuals and buckets of risk down to individuals becomes, that becomes really scary in, in the world that we live in now, doesn't it, in terms of the data that we see for people, but also the exclusionary opportunities that that really brings. So, you know, to your point, we're going down to asset types, you know, insuring my phone, the risk all around my phone is one thing, but actually you just used to insure your house and all the stuff in it, you know, and actually that was spread risk across all of those things, wasn't it? So are we sort of moving to almost, a, you know, it, can we and should we really get to that point with data having so much control and the individual being priced as an individual? Or do we really better better off as a societal level, you know, that everybody's just a, a fish in a barrel rather than the individual fish? That is, I feel like we could record a whole other hour podcast on that that question. I mean, I think that that is... That is the ongoing role of, of the regulatory bodies in insurance, and that is where I would love for the carriers and the reinsurers to, to bring an opinion. You're, you're totally right, because like even as I'm sort of offering this counter thought experiment of these experiential or micro asset level buckets, you know, you're, you're, the scary world of that starts to expose itself fairly quickly in terms of data privacy, exclusionary, discriminatory underwriting. These are none of these are questions that I 
this is the fun thing about working insurance. There's whole verticals within insurance that are academic disciplines unto themselves. And it's uh, you can you get to opine on them and say, that'd be cool for someone else to look into. <laughs> but uh, I, it's a really, really challenging and like sort of captivating question to, to continue to pull the thread on. We are probably going to have to wrap up at this point. But Victoria, I, I, knowing your regulatory background, I'm sure you want to have a quick, quick comment before we before we wrap up. But we probably need another whole podcast on this. I've been sitting here thinking, uh, post the NFT chat, I should say something about crypto. But I have there's one thing just screaming in my head, which is when when we have this new world where we insure experiences, please can we make it better than the current car hire insurance market? <laughs> and I'll just leave it there. <laughs> I loved what Stuart was saying earlier about the problem with embedded insurance is if it doesn't give you any choice. So I think if someone can crack that, how do you embed choice in insurance and, and advice? That will be a real winner. Right. That's going to have to wrap up today's discussion because we don't have time to explore all of the amazing issues that we've we've just opened up. Thank you all so much for joining me. This has been a fascinating episode. So where can people find out more about you and your companies? And I'm going to start with, with David, even though I kind of know the answer. 11fs.com. You can find me always lurking on LinkedIn. And how about you, Victoria? So we're on Twitter at TechNation and individually I'm at PolicyVix. And we'd love to share more information about the work of the InsurTech board and welcome people into the work that we're doing there. So do get in touch. And Stuart? You can check out our website, marblepay.com. And I'm on Twitter as O, O-H, O at Stuart, like O at Stuart. Stuart was taken, so that's what I went with. Excellent. And you can find me on LinkedIn or 11fs.com. So thank you everyone for listening. If you like what you heard, um, subscribe to our podcast and don't forget to leave us a review because it helps make it better and helps others find the show. As always, if you want to join the conversation, find us on social media, just search for 11FS or InsureTech Insider. Find us on Twitter at Instech Insiders or email podcast at 11FS.com. Thank you so much. Goodbye.